0: During the hot summers in Utah, we think of the Pacific Northwest as a place of endless rain that nourishes tall, green trees. But the drier weather of our changing climate has increased the number and intensity of forest fires, prompting ecologists to question whether forests will be able to recover naturally or if they will require human assistance. A recent study has documented the critical role of fire refugia, the green islands of live trees that remain after forest fires in forest regeneration in western Oregon and Washington. Their study, based on both fieldwork and satellite imagery, can lead to determining when human intervention in the form of tree planting is and isn't warranted, which is of vital interest to forest managers, policymakers, and the public. This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Natkarni, our guest today is Dr. Sebastian Busby from the U.S. Forest Service. Sebastian, I found your study on how green islands might help regenerate forests after fire as a really important piece of research, You know, especially in this time of, of shifts to a hotter, drier climate in so many regions of our country, including Utah and the Pacific Northwest. But, but before we get into the specifics of the study, I'd really like to introduce you to our listeners. Dr. Sebastian Busby is a postdoctoral researcher with the U.S. Forest Service. His research is focused on documenting the vulnerability and resilience of conifer forests to changing climate and other disturbances in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome, Sebastian.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Uh, super happy to be here.
0: Great, great, great. Um, Before we get into the specifics of your study, um, could you place your study in the area of forest ecology and the the subfield of disturbance ecology by describing the scope of that research area and and maybe put forward a few of the major questions you and your colleagues address in that field?
1: Yeah. um, So, I mean, I kind of think of myself as a, a fire ecologist and maybe a forest fire ecologist specifically. You know we study a lot of different dynamics related to forest ecosystems burning and how do they recover how do they resist fire effects one of the major pieces that i look at is sort of forest resilience to wildfire events and so thinking about uh you know a how to, how can or how do trees survive fires if they can and if they can't how do they regenerate naturally after a fire so that they can continue to occur on a landscape naturally.
0: Got it. That's fascinating, and I guess becoming increasingly important uh, as we as we move into this era of what seems to be forest fires every season and in just about everywhere. So I think that's a great area for for research. Um, I'd also like our listeners here in Utah to get an idea of the habitats of the places where you conducted your study. I know you've been working in those beautiful forests of western Washington and Oregon, and I was wondering if you could describe your study sites, You know what, what the forests are composed of, what it looks like, uh, both in terms of the intact forests and the burned forests. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so our conditions over here are probably pretty different from what you have in Utah, or at least the vast majority of it. We get a lot of precipitation over here in Western Oregon, and Washington especially. And so our forests are very dense, um, very, very productive. They store a lot of carbon. They grow very quickly, um, which can also mean that when you have a fire, there's a lot of fuel to burn. Um, So for the majority of the work I've done, I've mostly worked at moderate to high elevation forests. Oftentimes, people will think about these as subalpine forests. Um, and so you have uh, a majority of fir trees, not very many pines. Pines usually tend to occur at lower elevations or hotter places, so these are kind of cold, very moist forests, very dense, and historically they haven't burned very often.
0: And that actually leads to my next question, Sebastian, which is, you know, I know that the Pacific Northwest is so very wet, and it seems like, well, burning wouldn't be wouldn't really happen there very often under natural conditions. So I was wondering if you could describe the past historical patterns of natural fires in that area.
1: Yeah. So on any given year, usually the climate conditions are so wet that even if you or you were to go out into the forest and start a fire or lightning started a fire, Um, You know, you imagine just trying to start a fire with some really, really wet logs and it just doesn't go anywhere. And so those are the conditions that occur most of the time, which means that uh, fire just doesn't really have the ability to spread very often. But uh, we do sort of get these periodic episodes every 50 to 100 years or so historically where you do have a very, very, very dry summer. Uh, And it's under those conditions that you're ready to have a wildfire if you get an ignition, you know, and it can burn very expansively and severely over a very large area. Typically, fires may have burned every 50 years to sometimes four or five centuries because those conditions were so wet so much of the time. Uh, Really, really long periods of no fire. But when fire did happen, it did tend to be pretty catastrophic. And oftentimes it was uh, sort of coincided with these really extreme wind events. So not only were the forest fuels really dry, but you also had a ton of fuel and then you had really strong winds. And so oftentimes hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of acres would burn in a single event. Um, And so you'd have, you know, these really big fire events and then no fire for 50 to several centuries
0: and so how has that changed in recent decades you know what are the current environmental and climatic changes that that affect fire frequency and intensity and damage in your forests
1: yeah so some of the the key things that are increasing what we call fuel aridity so the dryness of fuels which then helps facilitate fire spreading is snowpack loss so particularly in sort of the mid elevation to high elevation forests a lot more of that precipitation is falling as rain during the winter and with less snowpack sort of being held up there, uh, during the summer that stuff usually melts and it keeps the forest moist throughout most of the summer. And so with just less snowpack, it's drying out more quickly in the spring. Our summers are also getting hotter and they're also getting longer. And so you can imagine, you know, at least by the end of the summer, maybe September, those forests are drying out and they're in a state that facilitates fire much more often on an annual basis.
0: This paper was published in the journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Climate Change this year. And when I saw the title of your paper, I imagined uh, sort of I had this image of you and your research team just sort of stomping around in recently burned areas, doing field measurements with diameter tapes and field notebooks. But, but what were the different approaches besides fieldwork that you, you used to understand the complex questions that you chose to address?
1: Yeah, so as sort of a a disturbance ecologist and also uh, what we call a landscape ecologist, we like to sort of meld together field data, uh, you know, which uh, we can get really good detail from that at a small scale, but it's hard to really, you know, go out and measure an entire forest, right? So we like to pair that with remote sensing and and geographic information system data. Um, And thinking about remote sensing, a lot of times that can be aerial imagery, from aircrafts that will fly over a burned area, or even satellites um, can take images of a burned area. And so we sort of pair together the results we find on the ground with the satellite imagery in order to say something about fire effects or force regeneration at landscape scales.
0: That actually probably took some collaboration and I see that you have a co-author, um, Andres Holtz. Uh, wondering about the sort of that collaboration, the collaboration itself, like what was the distribution of work between the two of you? How did you get together? Can you just describe that collaboration a bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Andres is actually, was actually my uh, graduate school advisor for my PhD. And so he, he has a very, very strong background in disturbance ecology. Um, and so, you know, he certainly helped guide a lot of the research design and the questions that we asked. And trying to keep it also within the context of um, what's important for us to focus on in terms of management implications and you know, things people care about, not just the ecology. Um, and sort of my background, obviously, I've uh, you know, worked a lot in fire ecology and disturbance ecology, but um, I spent a lot of time learning remote sensing techniques and GIS techniques, and I, I really love that work. So we kind of pulled our, our skills together
0: I'm really excited to hear and share what you found in your study. Could you describe some of the major highlights of your results?
1: Yeah. So sort of one of the, just setting up sort of the problem here, right, is that when we have these really large, expansive, severe fires, and that's here in the Pacific Northwest or elsewhere in the Western U.S., oftentimes there's so few trees left over that are alive that the forest can't or has a very hard time regenerating naturally. And that's because the vast majority of uh, trees, conifer trees, they have to reproduce from uh, sort of seeds that are ejected from cones, from live trees. And so when those live trees all get killed, you have no seeds and you have no recovery.
0: You know, I work a lot in tropical forests in Costa Rica, in in montane forests, and in those forests, when there's a disturbance like a tree fall or a windstorm, regeneration of the next generation of trees tends to come from a variety of sources, and one of them is from resident trees, like as you describe in the Pacific Northwest, but there's also the seed bank in the soil, that is the accumulation of dormant seeds that have fallen and been stored in the soil, and they stay dormant there for sometime and then germinate when they're exposed to sunlight. And I was wondering if if that dormant seed bank is an important source to create the next generation of trees in your forests.
1: It can be, but for a very limited period of time, for most of our tree species, conifer tree species, those seeds, once they fall on the ground, they're usually only viable for one to two years, if that. And so truly, it's really about those seeds that are sitting up in the canopy And then, you know, when they get ejected, they kind of need to germinate and get ready to go or else they expire.
0: So those live trees really are critical to the next generation of, of forests.
1: They are, absolutely.
0: You know, when we read about conservation of of forests and global climate change and climate change mitigation, it always seems that replanting trees is generally viewed as the optimal and and sometimes the only way to regenerate forests after fires. But your paper, I think, suggests that this practice can actually incur some problems and maybe even endanger future forests with greater risks. And so I was wondering if you could explain that. It seems sort of counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. So I think oftentimes we think of, you know, a fire... Uh, killing trees in a forest and then not recovering as being inherently negative, right? But in a way, sometimes, and especially thinking about it, a changing climate and changing fire patterns that are attached to those changing climate conditions, sometimes having a forest that's less dense, so it has fewer trees, as well as having uh, different patches that are non-forest can actually make it more resilient to fire, as well as other disturbances like insects or pathogens or drought. And so, yeah, just having total forest recovery isn't always, you know, a benefit or a good thing under all circumstances.
0: That is really interesting. I think, I mean, because I think, you know, we as humans always think, oh no, a disturbance, oh no, we have to prevent it or somehow bring it back to the way it was. But maybe in some cases, as your research has pointed out, that in fact, partial recovery might actually be a better answer for some things than than replanting totally
1: exactly and so that kind of gets into uh the issue of just assuming that we need to you know replant at full density after a fire uh because let's say we we didn't really think or plan or quantify what the natural regeneration might be like and we go back and we replant full density now you have sort of what uh the density of the force you want it to be and what you replanted in the ground plus what recovers naturally. And so now you have like a doubly dense forest. Oh
0: my gosh, I I never thought of that, Sebastian. I never really, that never entered my mind.
1: Yeah, Uh, and so now, you know, you have really different forest conditions from what you were hoping to achieve. uh, And there's a lot of risk and issues with that form of forest, uh, as I mentioned, just in terms of increased fire risk, uh, as well as um, lower resilience to these different disturbances.
0: I was also wondering about the generality of your results, um, that as you were working in Western Washington and Oregon, but of course, there's a lot of fire research, a lot of interest in the dynamics of, of disturbance in other ecosystems. And I'm, I'm thinking of some of the work like Monica Turner has done in Yellowstone with her many years of research in fire dynamics and wondering whether the results that you've gotten, the conclusions that you came to, how much of that might be applied to understanding disturbance ecology in other habitats?
1: Yeah, so I, I think some of the, the core findings we, we found out are pretty applicable anywhere. And it's sort of thinking about what is the interaction between the amount of seeds that reach a given site, as well as sort of the, the environment and climate, right? And so a seed might you know get dispersed and reach a site, but it might not have the right climate conditions in order to, to germinate and survive. And so you sort of get this equation that's like seeds times the environment equals tree regeneration. And so how those features interact is, is really important in accounting for that and thinking about both how many seeds reach a site as well as how much annual precipitation it gets. Or if you think about sort of a, things at a fine scale, like just walking around in a, in a burned forest, you know, how hot do the soils get? Is there any canopy cover left? Is there any woody debris on the ground left that can actually create some shade for seedlings and, and increase moisture. So it's just really important to think about all of those aspects when you're trying to do something like predict natural tree regeneration and, and incorporate them.
0: And uh, I went to graduate school at university in the forestry school at University of Washington many many years ago and Jerry Franklin and Fred Swanson and others kind of created what they called new forestry practices. And one of those was the, uh, the idea that if we could leave standing live trees in clear cuts, that would enhance the, the reproductive and regeneration of, of the forest that might recolonize those clear cuts. And I'm wondering whether, again, the results that you got looking at live trees and their role in regeneration of burns um, also applies to those clear cut disturbances.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really similar concept, right? If you do a a total clear cut where you completely remove all of the trees, you remove that seed source, uh, and then you don't have good natural regeneration, whereas leaving a few, you know, sort of, and especially, particularly those that are going to be a good seed source, so kind of usually the older trees, um, sometimes those of certain species that you want to keep going on the landscape. Uh, Leaving patches of those, sort of those remnant green islands um, on the landscape are really important.
0: In a previous interview about your paper, I read a quote from Tom Evans, who was a program officer at National Science Foundation. And he said, this research provides valuable results that the stewards of our forest can use to identify areas where trees are likely to recover on their own and where replanting will be needed, making forest recovery more cost effective and efficient. And so in the best of all possible worlds, how would you like to see your work applied to forest management and sort of on the ground forest practices?
1: Yeah, well, I think probably the, the quickest and best test bed and most utility, even um, thinking about right now. So in Oregon, and mostly Oregon, in 2020, we had some very, very large, severe fires. Um, we kind of call them the 2020 Labor Day fires that burned, you know, over, it was like 700,000 hectares or something across all of the different fire events. And so now we sort of have this uh, natural experiment where we've reset a lot of these forests and we get to see what grows back and we get to determine using the tools available to us where we might need to replant trees. And so I would love if uh, sort of some of the methods and, and work that came out of this research that we did might get applied to thinking about those burned landscapes, especially at the scale at which they burned, because there's a huge opportunity right now to actually test this out and and see where we actually do need to replant versus where we don't need to.
0: Well, that sounds like uh, making lemonade out of lemons, you know, this huge fire, but there is this potential now for you to actually test or explore how you might apply what you've learned in this academic research to on-the-ground forestry. And one of the things I'm curious about is how to get this information to, say, working foresters or to forest managers or to people who make policy decisions. Um, do you see that as part of your job as an academic, or does that belong to the work of others, that, that dissemination and communication?
1: I feel like it's both. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I think... Well, uh, that's
0: a great answer. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, but,
0: but, but elaborate on that. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, especially in the past, scientists have sort of been seen as like the, the objective minds that do the work and then they step away from it. And um, they don't have a lot of uh, influence or activity in trying to get that work used. They're sort of just like an absent observer. Uh, And I think scientists can have uh, a lot of power and a lot of utility in getting that research network into people's minds and and hands and getting them excited about it and using it. Um, The other issue, too, though, kind of the other flip side of that coin is generally that uh, scientists often aren't well trained in science communication uh, and as well as navigating various systems to get that information disseminated. Um, and so it, it seems like, you know, A, scientists could use a little more systematic training as graduate students or beyond in that realm. Um, and then also just having support from actual institutional structures that uh, their whole job is to disseminate that information.
0: Yeah, you know, I think a lot about, you know, should I be, when I have some results that might be relevant to forest management, you know, do I go to some diner in a coastal Oregon town and sit down and have coffee with loggers? Or do I put on my good suit and, you know, knock on the doors of policymakers, Or do I rely on on professional communicators? And I think that's something that's being really discussed and considered, especially with the younger generation, the the emerging scientists who who are feeling this response, this sense of responsibility as you are about how do we bring our science to others? And what do we learn from these community groups that might inform our science? I'd like to shift one more time and talk a little bit about you and your career. I'm sure that many of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, are thinking, oh, my gosh, what a great job this guy has. You know, how can I do what he's doing? And I'm, I'm wondering if you might have any advice or guidance for those folks.
1: Yeah, um, well, I think, uh, for, you know, for me personally, I growing up, I never thought of science as like a, a career for me. And, you know, I grew up pretty low income and. and blue collar. And it seemed like this very unapproachable thing that was for someone else. And uh, I, I went to undergrad and I, I did that. And that kind of opened my mind quite a bit to things, but still I felt like a bit of an outsider with that. But actually one of the pieces that really got me into science was my dad. He's He does construction for a living, but he, he has the mind of a scientist. He loves problem solving and, and figuring things out. And I grew up working with him, sort of just questioning everything. How, how does this work? How can we figure out how it works? And so, you know, I, I think kind of everybody has the potential to be a scientist. It's just um, sort of breaking through that, that academic barrier uh, that can exist financially as, as well as class-wise it can be challenging.
0: You know, I never would have thought that, especially given the quality of the paper that you published, that you would have any shred of doubt that you're a great scientist. That's really, really interesting. And I think very important for others to hear that it's not just people who have, you know, PhD parents or the expectation that, of course, you're going to go into some academic or professional career. But it's really everybody has the potential to contribute. So that's a that's a wonderful thing to hear. I see you as an emerging forest ecologist and and you're launching your career in this important area of research with your new postdoc. And I'm wondering what your sort of immediate next steps are. What are you taking on as your next research project?
1: Yeah, so the the project I'm working on now is sort of uh, a bit of a response to the the big 2020 fires we had here and thinking about if we managed our forests in Western Oregon and Washington and um, Western Northern California, differently from what we're doing now, might that make them more resistant and resilient to fire um, management wise? And, and what are the costs associated with that? Um, or perhaps not. Um, one of the big controversies we have on the west side that's a bit different from a lot of the inland western US is um, that our forests are so productive that you know even if you go out and thin them, sometimes they grow back so quickly that um, you don't really get that benefit when a fire happens. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty around how do we manage Western for West side forests for fire resistance and can we and how much might that cost. Um, so I'm working on a project that's uh, trying to help understand that question and answer that question a, a little bit better right
0: now. And here's another question. I don't know if you have an answer to it, but do you have a vision of what your career might develop into in the more distant future? Are you thinking of academia, or maybe agencies like with the Forest Service or a consulting kind of job? Could you describe the scenario of you work for Dr. Sebastian Busby 25 years from now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's oh, that's such a good question. You know, t- to be honest, I think in my career thus far. Uh, I've kind of taken things as they've come and, and haven't necessarily created like a, a super hard vision for myself and instead sort of responded to the opportunities that have sort of come to me and, and been open to them and put energy into them. I have personally found that that sort of way of engaging with the world has led me to like a really incredible opportunities and very fulfilling opportunities. But I would love to continue to learning more and researching. I think eventually I would love to be a teacher, you know, a, a professor. Teaching is, is super fun to me. i had the opportunity as a graduate student to teach a couple classes and guest lecture. And I just love supporting new students and especially students who are totally alien to a topic, you know, and, and showing them that, that, that even though it seems so complex, they have the ability to start to grasp it and, and can see it as really cool and interesting.
0: Well, Sebastian, I have no doubt that you are going to achieve exactly that. Um, then you're well on your way already. I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. Um, I really enjoyed learning from from your perspectives and want you to know that we at Utah Public Radio wish you all the best for your work in, your, in the future. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Thanks so much for having me. really appreciate it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott, our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.